Hello and welcome to Words on Wood, the podcast asking the big questions surrounding forests and the timber industry, which sets out to show how and why these issues matter to contemporary architecture and design. This week, we're going back to school as we learn about the world of timber education. Hello, I'm Ollie Stratford and I am very excited to be discussing a topic where I have a wealth of experience, having begun my own education in working with wood at the tender age of five. Five seems a bit young to be handling some pretty sharp tools. Well, you'd be wrong there. I started out as chief sanding officer to my older brother, which is a very important position where you're in sole charge of sandpaper before excelling in that role and graduating to making my own set of shelves at age eight. I think if you speak to experts, they very much feel the Stratford masterpiece, however, was my wood-based decorative arts period, in which I worked on the outline of the iconic feline form from Théophile Alexandre Steenland's Le Chat Noir poster, which I rendered pretty flawlessly using a jigsaw. The tail did later break off, but through no fault of the maker. I feel woefully uneducated in comparison. Um, My expertise is limited to the textile arts. And in fact, researching this episode made me realise just how little timber has featured in my education. I think whether you learn about it in school is luck of the draw. My design and technology classes were great, but they were very much focused on working with metal and plastics. And while I would love to pick up carpentry now as a hobby, it's really hard to know where to start. And this is something that our experts touched upon in interviews. There's this real desire from many people to learn how to work with wood, either through formal education or drop-in services. But how exactly do you access those? The two speakers we're talking to today are notable for the fact that not only have they both taught working with wood, but they've set up their own schools to do so and each in their own way is passionate about expanding timber education into something more than simply how to sand, jigsaw or turn a piece of wood from a workshop. Right, so I think we should dive straight into our interviews today because they both had so much to say about timber education. In terms of a formal education in wood in the UK, Parnham College is a standout example of an institution that took a holistic approach to the craft and business of a career in wood. Founded in 1976 by the British furniture designer John Makepeace, Parnham billed itself as a school for craftsmen in wood and operated independently until 2001, when it amalgamated with the celebrated Architectural Association. Over the course of its 25 years, Parnham produced many illustrious alumni who went on to make a big impact in the field, including Constantine Gurchich, Mark Boddington and Isabel Moore. But the name that's inextricable from Parnham is very much John's. Already a successful designer in his own right, he'd seen a gap in the education of young designers and architects who not only wanted to work with wood, but to value their skills with it properly, as he explained when I spoke to him. Yes, well, I've had quite a long career, and and it started uh, with my making furniture with uh, one apprentice that grew, uh, and uh, it became rather... Um, I think what was very fortunate was that I had some design skills, and I gained design recognition, which in turn gave me a, a sort of additional 
um, status, I think, in terms of being able to charge for much time I spend designing. Whereas with many designer makers, um, I think that has to be done for nothing, which means they value that time. Well, they don't put any value on that time. Whereas I think it's really important to be able to reject ideas until you get the right solution and something which is going to be something which is going to sing. Back when John had begun his own training, no one really considered a designer who also made their own furniture to be a proper career path. Now, John's career as a designer maker obviously went on to prove that idea wrong, but being encouraged to develop a backup plan sowed the seeds for what would become Parnham College. When I started training, um, I went to a workshop with a man called Keith Cooper. And his, we're talking about 1957. Um, and I was wanting, I had the idea I wanted to design and make furniture. And he just was quite clear. He said, do you realise you're not going to be able to make a living? And, you know, it was a very sensible and, and proper remark. He said, to give you an option, why don't you um, train to be able to teach? And I could do that by distance learning. So what it meant was that I was in, working in the in his workshop during the day and in evenings at weekends I was doing a distance learning course in uh, qualifying to teach and that addressed issues like uh, all, the, all the things that one didn't do in a workshop like um, uh, you know the theory, uh, the, the, um, the technology, uh, the creative elements, the history of design, the philosophy of design and all those things were hugely valuable to me um, when I came to setting up a college. John recognised that while he had the status that allowed him to charge properly for his work and to make his designs with wood a going concern, there was another issue. He was frustrated that business and craft education remained siloed. While business skills were, and are, still highly valued by higher education, art subjects are often treated as second best, while their students are encouraged to work for passion rather than proper payment. My career then went on to um, be concerned with education uh, and with training another generation of designer makers. Uh, and that was probably prompted by becoming a member of the Crafts Council in 1973, 1972, uh, when our brief was to promote and improve the work of artist craftsmen. Uh, well, as a committee, I didn't see how we could do that, but I did see what I could do about it personally. And so I set up a college and bought a, a rather big historic house with 80 rooms, uh, sufficient for all our purposes of, of accommodating students full time so that they were living and working on the site. This historic house was Parnham House, a grade one listed house dating from the 16th century, located in Dorset, a rural county in the southwest of England. Having passed through many owners, the historic building had lain empty for three years when John found it. John bought Parnham in 1976 and turned it into a school that offered an alternative university experience for a cohort of 10 to 11 students per year. And that took off from the moment go. I mean, it was an expensive programme. Um, £3,000 at the time was far more than a public school, any public school. 
but students were there from around the world from year two. And clearly we had touched a nerve which was um, being sensed everywhere by young people wanting not people who could and would normally have been expected to go into the formal professions wanting a career in making things at a high level so something which was not just a trade but which would be an art as well. While he ran his design practice from the site John wasn't an active presence in the teaching himself not wanting to turn out a new generation of makers who made just like he did. Instead he hired a wide range of different designers and makers all of whom made a living through their work with wood to tutor the students. So every project was attached to a particular maker who had been successful in their field. Uh, And they would not only um, oversee a project, but they'd talk about their business. So these things become sort of part of the conversation. Uh, And and then the business tutor would formalise that and, and make it into something that was that one could um, I don't know it, it's the kind of the depth and the, the, the technology and the practicality of business, running a business and and th- that evolved as over the period of the course into developing a plan for the business where were the markets going to be uh, and what well what one's product range going to be where might those uh, products find a market and how does one approach and and become directly involved in that market. The ratio of student to teachers was about two to one, with all of them living and working together on site, even sharing meals together in a fully immersive environment. The USP of Parnham was that would-be woodworkers could learn all these skills from outstanding makers, but also learn how to market those skills across the wider design industry. And so that is what um, we set out to do, is to train people in design in making and in running a business. And those things, of course, are normally separated into individual institutions. So people become one or the other. So you might become a manager, you might become a tradesman, or you might become an artist. But, you know, all those talents are needed in a business. And so Parnham College uh, set out to achieve that and working with very capable young people, of course they could manage all those three areas. We, we tend to make people into a specialist, into a silo, where they become less self-reliant because they're dependent on other specialisms. Being able to dedicate years of your life to craft is definitely one way to gain an education in wood. But it's not the only way. To get another perspective on how people come to learn woodcraft, I spoke to Helen Welsh, a woodworker and educator who founded the London School of Furniture Making in 2013. Helen came to teaching after a long and specialised career in woodworking, which she'll tell us more about now. Well, I'm Helen Welsh and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the London School of Furniture Making. I've been a woodworker for about 38, going on 39 years, and a woodworking educator for nearly 30 years. So I've been around a bit. I've done, uh, I trained as a carpenter joiner. I eventually went into construction on the professional side into surveying, got fed up with it. Decided I wanted to do something more fun. So I took myself to uni and specialised, well, I did a music technology degree and I specialised in guitar making. 
And while I was there, then I started to teach in the evenings and it was a hop, skip and a jump to furniture making. And that's pretty much the short condensed version of it. So um, I've always, I would I say always, I think for the last 25 years, I've always mixed making with teaching. And now I've transitioned out of most of the making for for customers doing any commission work and it's all full-time education now. Helen's path into setting up her school wasn't necessarily linear, but like John's, it has a pleasing symmetry to it. You know, I was one of those kids that was always interested and curious, but not necessarily academically gifted, but enough to, to get on. But I struggled when it came to A-levels and I became demotivated and I just thought, I'm just fed up now. So I was asked to leave by the head of sixth form. She said, if you're not prepared to turn up to classes and put, you know, put the effort in, then I suggest you leave. And I thought, well, thank you for trying to help. And I thought, well, OK, I'll go. And uh, within a week of leaving, I met uh, a group that were running train carpentry and woodwork training workshops uh, not too far from where I live. And so me and my best friend went over there and we had a lovely time and then realised that this was probably the start of a woodworking career or something in construction or the built environment. So that experience with them was marvellous, but I only got six months with them. Construction, where Helen was training, was not an especially inclusive industry, and there remains much work to do to address that legacy today. As a young black woman, Helen had to fight just to occupy the same space. Then I got an apprenticeship with the local authority, and that was a hit-and-miss um education so there were great practical things but there was also just a lot of difficult social things and uh, general mistrust of having anyone that was a woman or a young woman or a black woman in a predominantly white male space. Now that makes for dispiriting listening but if we're going to talk about education we have to acknowledge these issues and then set about trying to tackle them. I think the only reason I managed to stay there for three years was because there were a small group of people who stood up for me and took me under their wing and made sure that the worst and most egregious parts I was protected from but there's still just um, unpleasant parts to it but funnily enough you know 35 you know nearly 40 years on I'm in an environment which is now in the workshop that I'm in is all bar me is a white man and there's a completely different, there's a different energy and it's a more inclusive energy and this, yeah, it's just lovely. It's just a lovely place to be. So it's definitely not about the makeup of the people there. It's just basically about whether people want to protect their spaces or they just want to um, enjoy the interacting with who's around them. It's good to hear that things have and are still changing because that openness to difference in woodworking spaces makes a world of difference. Now, let's get back to Helen's journey towards setting up her own school. I moved on from there into building surveying, carried on getting educated in that more professional side of things. And I did enjoy it. And I did that for about five years, but I just missed the practical hands-on making, though that brought me back to um, studying. And that's how I ended up at university, doing the music technology degree. And I specialised in instrument making, loved every minute of that, thought it was just like heaven. 
and then realise, of course, that nobody needs a guitar maker. <laughs> or if they need them, they don't need them very often. And there's probably already 10 too many in the world. So I turned my hands to just carrying on with furniture making, building, construction, and did every bit of work that came my way. Like John, during her own career in study, Helen had also identified a gap in wood education, and it was one that affected both aspiring hobbyist woodworkers and those who had already gone pro. One of the biggest barriers to entry in woodworking is access. Whether you learn about it in school or from a family member is totally luck of the draw. But working with wood requires a certain amount of space, equipment and training. You can't just start sawing in your living room unless your housemates are all hamsters and they won't mind the sawdust. But the spaces where you can learn how to work with wood are getting harder and harder to come by, especially in densely populated areas such as London, where space is at a premium and businesses are under ever-increasing pressure to make the space they do have pay. When I started teaching first, I was teaching evening classes in several different um, colleges around London. And gradually, I watched that provision get taken away because a workshop is a resource-heavy thing for any college to have. And it's expensive. And I, at that time, there was definite pressure on the real estate of uh, every institution to justify why they've got it. And those workshops were targeted quite quickly to go, well, if we get rid of those, we can get a computer suite in and then we can get more computers. And then that makes that space more valuable than having lots of space that we think is redundant, but obviously not for us woodworkers. So it was that really, noticing that there weren't many places to go. If you just wanted to be a hobbyist woodworker and try something new or just make your own things, that the main off the main stuff that was being offered was, oh, yes, come, but you have to get a qualification. That means you have to commit to X amount of time. Um, and if you didn't want a qualification and you just wanted to enjoy yourself, it was off-putting. It was another barrier or a level of friction that would just put you off or put one off. So I thought, well, what can I do? What Can I, can I offer something that I would want to do? Something that didn't necessarily mean I had to commit to a long course of study, but I could pop in and out. Say, right, this week I want to learn about dovetails. Uh, and in a few months time, I want to learn about planes and just sort of bolt on sections. And that was so that was the main motiv- motivation. And also I wanted to have my own school. Just thought it'd be nice. <laughs> nice to control my um, my work. The London School of Furniture is part of a larger workshop that houses up to 15 other designer-maker companies, all sharing the space and resources. As Helen explained, the concept allows you to pick and mix classes according to your need and ability, ranging from total wood newbies to the experienced woodworker brushing up on a particular technical skill. One thing that John and Helen have in common is the desire to learn more about wood. Parnham College was surrounded by woodland, and John took that opportunity to think deeply about material supply chains. While, given Helen's background in forestry, she's also well-placed to educate people about the provenance of materials. But I think there was a transition phase between one job that I was doing and I thought, you know what, I've got some time that I can devote to learning a new subject, a new topic. And it was a toss-up between building restoration 
or something slightly more practical and more hands-on and it turned out that there was a forestry two-day forestry course happening in Lewis uh, across a year and I thought well why not why not why not take myself down there for two days and find out what working in a wooden woodland is like what woodland management is about and what does and what would that do for what I already know because I, you know, I had some knowledge about how timber works, but I didn't really understand how forests worked and how people managed and looked after them, especially in this country. Even if you love to work with wood, you're not necessarily going to have an innate understanding about where it comes from. Just like if you go to a supermarket to pick up some food, you might not necessarily have any idea about how it was farmed. I think there is a misunderstanding of where, in the first instance, we get our timber from. I th- you know, when I ask students, I say, well, where, where do you think this timber's come from? And they're like, mm, I don't know, wicks? And I go, yeah, no, but beyond wicks, where do you think they've got it from? And they genuinely have no idea. So I think just there's a, there is a general uh, misunderstanding and lack of either knowledge or interest in the general public about what timber is, what it does, how we use it. So even though a lot of the material that Helen uses in her classes on a day-to-day basis tend to be mainly solid boards, she encourages the students to connect with the source of their chosen medium. As far as the education of teaching my students go, I try to just get them to understand that there, that we have some fantastic stuff here and, it, and that to expand their idea of what they can use is to you know, go out into a woodland, have a, try and identify what the trees are, try, you know, pick up a fallen branch and go home and carve it into a spoon. Just do something that informs more than just passively going to a timber merchant or passively going to Wix or B&Q or one of those places. John also has a very intimate connection to the material he works with. Today, he runs his studio from his home in Beeminster, where he grows and seasons the wood for his current and future furniture commissions. John became fascinated by the way that the UK manages its woodlands after he was given a commission at Longleat, a famous country home turned safari park in the south of England. And that turned into a fantastic way to teach the students how to connect with the source of their material. I think it started uh, at Longleat, um, where I'd done a commission, I was doing a commission for the house and we wanted to use timber from the estate. And so, uh, um, I really came to understand forestry at a, at a high level in terms of you know, 4,000 acres of beautifully run and managed forest uh, and the materials that would come from that. And that was a continuing association. We then took students and worked in the forest and camped there and using coppice material. Each day, the forester would take us to another area of seeing the maturing crops uh, and the harvesting and the wastage. But it's with this in mind that John is concerned that the wider public still has no idea about the provenance of timber and wood. And that's an issue, given how vital material supply chains and trees are when it comes to mitigating the climate crisis that we're currently in the midst of. John thinks that, as a field, forestry should be doing more to get people engaged with its world. You know, it no longer has this capacity to excite people and bring people to... um, understanding the whole train of events from planting and managing woodlands uh, to bringing on a a beautiful crop of trees which have such huge environmental and economic benefits if we look after them. 
we hear endlessly about planting trees, but you know that's nothing. They're going to become rubbish if they're not cared for, and then they get burned, and we put the, the carbon back in the atmosphere. So it's a nonsense if, if we plant trees and don't care for them. Okay, so that's a little depressing, but don't worry, this isn't where we're going to end this episode. Now, some listeners may have recognised Helen's voice, and that's because she was recently the star of a popular TV show that brought woodworking to the masses. Helen was one of the judges on Channel 4's Handmade, Britain's Best Woodworker, which brought together a number of contestants to create a different wooden creation each week in a competition show format, although it's fair to say she wasn't entirely convinced by the premise initially. I think it was in April 2019, um, someone from the production company got in touch with me and said, we're looking for someone who might be interested in help, helping us devise a pilot for a new show. And I said, what is it? And they said, oh, it's like woodworking meets Bake Off. And I said, what a terrible idea. Woodwork- <laughs> woodworking just isn't like baking. It takes ages. You need special space and, you know, it, it, you know it's just different. And they said, well, maybe, but... You know, we'll give it a go. Are you interested in doing a screen test? And I said, yeah, okay, fine. I mean, nothing ventured, nothing gained. As a person who works with wood and teaches others how to do it, Helen wasn't used to being on the judge's side of the table, but watching the contestants work with wood under pressure gave her a new appreciation for the craft. And I think what surprised me more than anything else was how much the woodworking contestants were so good-humoured. About <laughs> about having a camera in their face almost twenty four seven and people constantly interrupting their workflow because if there's one thing that I want when I'm making making things is quiet time to focus and not being constantly interrupted. I just want to be able to you know sit and think about what it is I need to do next or plan my way through. But you know the show is all about well what's happening now. And what are you thinking about? And what do you, oh, is that working for you? Oh, is it not working? Oh, well, why do you think it's not working? And it, cool, everyone be quiet now and set. We've got this to happen, this, this, this to record. And you, I, I thought, wow, they are so good natured about it. Because I just really would have been kind of fuming and not good <laughs> as a contestant. Britain's Best Woodworker definitely struck a chord with the public, as it's becoming a boom time for people wanting to learn how to work with wood. Over the past year alone, the London School of Furniture has been inundated with new applications. The show came out in in September 2021, but I'd already noticed that there was a huge uptick in interesting courses, I think largely down to lockdowns and the restricted movement of being able to go wherever you want and travel. So I think for me, I was lucky enough to benefit from the perfect um, situation of nobody spending their money because they weren't going anywhere um, fed up with being at home and also thinking I've always wanted to do woodwork and I suppose now I've got time so I think that was um, had a much much bigger effect on the numbers of people coming through our doors and I think probably any other, any other um, craft school in London around the country there's just something about working with wood, a living material that you can see growing all around you, even in the city. It must just be so satisfying, which makes me think it's time for me to dig out my old sandpaper equipment. Where can we sign up for wood school? 
One of my favourite things that I learned from Helen is that she offers classes where you can make your own miniature woodworking bench that could fit on a kitchen counter. So you can learn how to make the very thing that will allow you to keep making, even in a tiny space. I think there is a definite requirement or, or, or desire to have something that is not just about making money or just about business and is something to something that's more personal and intrinsically about them and what they can do um, with their own hands and their own creativity. So I think it's that. And also, I think it's it's very easy to pick up a box and say, I made this. And everyone says, oh, you made that. That's great. But when you explain to people that oh, you're a consultant or you are, you know, you, you're a project manager, and like, well, what do you project manage? And then after two minutes, everyone's sort of, oh, it's not very interesting. So I think the the hook of woodworking and, and making things with your hands is immediately accessible to everybody. Everyone knows what it is that you're doing when you show them. So I think there's that as well. This has been Words on Wood, a podcast made by Desenio in collaboration with and with support from AHEC, the American Hardwood Export Council. Your hosts have been me, Ollie Stratford, and India Block, and it has been produced and edited by Evie Hall. <laughs>